0: i'm michelle harvin and welcome to business 2020 foresight through hindsight a podcast of the aspen institute's business and society program in this podcast series we take a fresh look at major events in business and society over the past two decades from the wto protests to 9-11 from enron to occupy wall street these events may have left the front page, but they offer important lessons for business leaders in the decades ahead. Whether it's the WTO protest 9-11 or many of the other events in this series, one major lesson for business leaders has been the need to plan for surprise and uncertainty. To paraphrase Rosabeth Moss Cantor from the first episode of our podcast, business leaders need to plan for moments when history violates our expectations of how the world works. The onset of COVID-19 this year and all that has followed is one such moment. And it's not over yet. At the time of this podcast recording, we are weeks away from an election with tremendous implications for business and society in the U.S. and beyond. Another lesson we've learned over this series, though, is that there is no single framework that can provide all the answers to navigate the twists and turns of history. Experts might be able to assess the probability of a terrorist attack or pandemic and even forecast their impact. But any expectation that the future will unfold according to plan is likely to be violated. So where does that leave businesses, who must plan for the future in everything from investments to new hires? To answer that question, I spoke with Betty Sue Flowers. Betty Sue has been many things, including a poet, the director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Library and Museum, and an emerita professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin, to just name a few. But for this episode, we'll hear about a role Betty Sue played in the business world. In 1992, Betty Sue was the editor of a book of business scenarios for Shell, the energy giant. These scenarios weren't typical business forecasts. They were richly imagined alternate futures, made to feel equally plausible by Betty Sue's training in creative writing. This art of envisioning multiple equally plausible futures might just be critical for businesses in this moment of deep uncertainty and societal challenges. So I called Betty Sue to hear more and to learn what, if anything, we can learn about the future. Hi, this is Michelle.
1: Hi, hi Michelle. We're just setting up.
0: Oh, fantastic. How are Uh, you doing today?
1: uh, Very, very well. We're kind of in the middle of uh, New York, sirens, the whole thing.
2: Oh, good. Well, Betty Sue, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to be talking with you.
1: Well, my pleasure. Thank you.
2: And today we're going to be talking about scenario planning and sort of getting into what it even means to be doing it, uh, why we do it. So I wanted to start with just what is scenario planning and why do companies do it? Well, scenarios are different from forecasts, and that's the main distinction
1: that's important. Because a forecast will take what's happened in the past and project it into the future. And they're very important. But scenarios just leap right into the future. And they come in sets of two or three or four. And they give us alternate, equally plausible, equally challenging futures. So scenarios are worked with a little differently from forecasts. And so why do companies do it? They do it because we always are caught by surprise. Since we think the future will be like the past, even though we know the one thing that we can predict about the future is that it's not predictable, we're not sensitive to what's changing. But when companies work with scenarios, when they use them as a platform for strategic discussion, then they are flexibly oriented towards the future because future A may happen, Future B may happen, future C. You think of the future as fictions because one thing we know about the future, it's always and
2: only a fiction. And so can you tell us about your own career in scenario planning? How did you get into it? Well,
1: I was working as the series consultant on Joseph Campbell and the power of myth. And when that best-selling book came out, I got a lot of calls asking me to help with other books. And I turned them all down except for one. I was also teaching at the University of Texas at Austin. In the midst of working on this book, the guy I was working with became the head of scenarios at Shell and insisted that I come to write. So I came over and during the day I wrote scenarios for Shell and learned all about scenarios. And at
2: night we finished the book. And so Shell, I want to go into some of your highlights of your work. Shell's Um, a big one that comes to mind.
1: Yes, because they pioneered scenarios uh, with a man named Pierre Wack, a really interesting person, who learned from the Rand Corporation, which was doing scenarios. And Pierre Wack took this idea and brought it into a company. And because Shell was flexibly oriented towards the future because of discussions they had had about the oil price might go one way rather than what the forecast had said, Because of that, Shell was positioned for the oil crisis in the 70s in a different way from the rest of the other oil companies. And it went from being something like, I don't know, 11 to 2. And so because of that, Shell continued the practice and does to this day. I'm currently part of the team for the scenarios that will be coming out next year.
2: Really? So you're still doing scenario planning. And so our scenarios, they're they're sort of flexible, right, because they're Are they constantly changing?
1: Well, yes, because the the future always changes. Since it's just a story, the story about the future always changes as the present changes. So scenarios have to be refreshed and renewed, and strategic discussions held on top of them have to be renewed also.
2: And so based on your experience, what makes for effective scenario planning?
1: Well, I think uh, scenario planning happens in a number of stages. You start by interviewing all the top executives, because they're the ones who are the decision makers. And scenarios are aimed at the leaders when you do them in a corporation. So you start by interviewing them to see what the themes are. And then once you have that information and you see what the concerns are, you create alternate versions of the future, which are challenging and plausible, on which you can have strategic discussions. So the quality of the effects of scenarios, it's very hard to measure any specific outcome of scenarios. It's very hard to put metrics against them. But the quality of the outcome depends on the quality of the strategic conversations that are held on top of them. So you'll have a workshop. You'll present the scenarios. Then there'll be a discussion, which won't be like the usual discussions that are held around forecasts.
2: Can we get into more, I guess, concrete examples with Shell? Did creating these scenarios affect investment or anything that you saw? Yeah, I can say two things there
1: and about two different sets of scenarios. Shell's way of doing scenarios uh, back, say, 20 years ago was that every country who proposed a budget and a plan, a strategic plan. That plan had to be robust in every scenario. That's very important. Now, lately, Shell has has, uh, produced its first normative scenario. That is a scenario about a future that it does want to see happen. It's called Sky. And it's how to get to net zero emissions by 2070. And when we wrote this scenario, it's very difficult to get there. You know, we're we're all trying to meet the Paris uh, Agreement. It's very difficult to get there, but it can be done, and it can be done without people giving up meat tomorrow and not flying in airplanes and that kind of thing. And so Shell showed how it could be done in this normative scenario. And now there are companies and governments all over the world who are trying to write their own scenarios, normative scenarios, which is to say more like a pathway to a desired future based on Sky. I'm doing one right now for Malaysia. So Shell is moving from being a fossil fuel company to an energy company. And people can have a lot of cynicism around that. There's a lot of cynicism around big corporations these days, especially fossil fuel companies. But the Business Roundtable has said we need to move from being strictly a shareholder world to a stakeholder world. And I I think I see scenarios helping in that transition. The trouble with the environmental story that we're telling these days is that it makes people feel helpless and hopeless And by working on the Shell-Sky scenario, which showed how we really could do it, and I think we really could, I feel much more hopeful. And hope gives you energy because of a scenario about how it could actually happen that we reach net zero emissions and fulfill the Paris Climate Agreement. So
2: you have come from colleges, and I wanted to also, looking at the future, turn to today's college students. So the higher education has been reshaped by an argument that liberal arts education must be scaled back in favor of more practical, you know, in quotes, career oriented coursework. What education do you think should prepare students for the future?
1: It's a truism these days that students are advised to go into STEM. And I do think that literacy in technology is absolutely essential, but what we use technology for is storytelling. And the liberal arts are the home of stories, ancient and modern, and the critique of stories. More than ever to to preserve democracy, we need the capacity on everybody's part to be able to analyze the stories we're being given, to spot the material fallacies. So I think that if we're gonna preserve our humanity in the future of AI and algorithmic decision-making, we have to have much more education in philosophy and critical thinking and the analysis of stories
2: and i love that you sort of blend all of these together with your background in literature and i'm wondering if these companies who may be run by metrics are ever do they ever reject the idea of the, this, that storytelling is so powerful
1: no, they can't these days. They don't reject it. But what they do like to do, and this isn't true just of Shell, but every big company that has the wherewithal to to do very fine measuring, they do like to shape the stories around the metrics. So the model drives a lot of the narrative, when actually we know that models can be very misleading. And I remember in the last crisis, the last economic crisis, Queen Elizabeth asked the economist, why didn't you predict this? <laughs> Which was a very good question. And, I, and uh, so I did some scenarios at Oxford around uh, the future of, of economics based on what had happened in that people didn't predict the, a kind of global recession.
2: And so for our podcast, our, our tagline is finding foresight through hindsight. When we look back on the last, say, 20 years What do you think are the big events or trends that are most instructive for imagining the future?
1: Well, I think digitalization is a key one. I think the greater threat to the environment is the second one. And I think this new global culture that's emerging and breaking up into islands of dissension, I think that's a key one too. I love your your tagline about hindsight and foresight, even though I did caution against believing in forecasts. But hindsight, history tells us a lot about human nature, which doesn't change so much. And (laughs) we really need to know and consider that more often. We humans tend to forget the past, the lessons of the past, and we tend to have to keep learning them.
2: Right. And I did want to get into that caution. Uh, Can can taking the past as a guide to the future lead you to actually forecast more continuity rather than radical change? And is it possible to avoid that trap? I think scenarios are the way
1: to avoid that trap because what hindsight teaches you, and by the way, I have to stress again, I do believe in forecasts. They're very, very necessary. And I do believe in hindsight from the perspective of looking at human nature. But it's really important to have different fictions of the future going at the same time because we can't predict it. So if we have one story of the future going, we tend to hold it as a fact. If we have more than one equally plausible version of the future in our minds, we're more likely to hold them as the fictions that they are.
2: So the key is that looking at them as fiction.
1: Looking at any story about the future as a fiction. We can create better stories. If we really take that on board, that the story of the future is a fiction, we can create better fictions. And what's key about that is that the story we tell about the future shapes the present. So we can have a better present by having a better story about the future.
2: And I'm curious with creating these scenarios when there's so many factors that can influence the future, how do you manage to keep in mind all these different factors that that could change the future so radically?
1: Well, that's the key to having multiple scenarios. So you handle some factors in one and some in another, and then there are key drivers that will appear in all the scenarios. You have to really do a kind of stage set in which leaders can imagine themselves stepping into that world. I mean, A story like Star Star Wars, say, is very entertaining, but it's not useful as a scenario, because while you might imagine yourself as Darth Vader stepping into Star Wars, you can not imagine yourself as the CEO of of an oil company stepping into that world. So scenarios are more like stage sets than entertaining novels, and they provide worlds that you can imagine yourself in and ask yourself, well, if this was the future, what would I do in that future?
2: Well, I love this idea of merging sort of business and storytelling as a storyteller. I I think that this is a, just an amazing concept. Um, and I want to thank you so much for talking with us today. Well,
1: thank you. And I want to add one little thing, uh, which is that we're always already in a story. We're just not aware of it. So this new awareness of stories is powerful because then we might see the bad stories that we're stuck in that we're not even aware we're in. So thank you. Thank you, Betty Sue, for that great conversation.
0: Listeners of our podcast know that each episode, we look back at an event from the last 20 years to look forward. So what if we look back at the entire 20 years as a whole? To wrap up our series, senior producer Keith Schumann and business and society program executive director Judy Samuelson did just that. Here's how they see the 1999 to 2020 era and what they think will come next.
3: Let's get started with our interview. So, Judy, sometimes decades of history are immortalized with names. I'm thinking of the Roaring Twenties or the Swinging Sixties, for example. So let's consider the two decades this podcast covers. What name do you think historians will coin for the 1999 to 2020 era?
4: I'm inclined to say we're gonna end up calling this the ought nots. I believe that one of the profound shifts during this last two decades has been as a result of a number of different forces, the power of social media, the power of NGOs that have organized their capacity to essentially hijack corporate brands, and use it to important ends like raising the bar on human rights. And I'd add a third, the growing importance of employee voice as a new form of accountability inside companies. I think these things have conspired in a way that companies have had to really reckon with things that they simply can't do anymore. Places where they've really had to really shift the business model in important ways and clean up their own act. It's also, of course, been a time where we've seen business engage in some important new thinking and start to identify opportunities that would land well for the for the company and for its various publics when managed well and really operationalized through the firm. so we've seen we've seen some really important shifts, but we entered this decade, these two decades in a very different place and we're exiting.
3: So what do you think is the biggest lesson of these last twenty years?
4: I think a significant lesson of the last 20 years is that business doesn't control the definition of corporate responsibility, that increasingly the norms and protocols and public expectations of the firm are emerging out of long supply chains, NGOs and governments that have a kind of an angle on this from lots of different perspectives and lots of different places and are working in concert with one another to raise the bar and elevate and realize higher expectations of business. And that the nature of the problems that business is engaged in, or that we, the public, are asking business to be engaged in, they are complex, long tail, and you know it's not in their control. And that's that's a very different game that they need to play than than was the case decades back.
3: So what would you say to someone who's just starting out in business now and and cares about social impact, but they look around at all of the crises this year, and there's no shortage of them, that's for sure, and they doubt, you know, that they can make a difference in the face of uh, long-established trends?
4: You know, I think that's fair, but I often say, you know, give me the problem that keeps you awake at night, and I can make the connection back to business and how it shapes decisions and the rules and protocols under which it operates that I can make a connection back to how business operates in that problem. And I certainly the case for climate. I mean, climate is a function of industrialization. We are wholly dependent on business behavior there. We need policy clearly. We need business to not fight policy. We need business to embrace policy. So I think there's a role both in terms of a business's own operations, but it's also business leaning in, in consortia with other businesses to shape the kind of policy that is gonna raise the bar in a way that will you know, recalibrate business and the needs of society. Look, business is the most powerful and influential institution of our age. We are not gonna address inequality without business at the table being thoughtful about the relationship with employees, without sightline through to contractors, without thinking deeply about why we outsource jobs. is it If it's just to save money, that's probably not a very good answer. So I think in all of these, there's what we call business agency and choices that business has to make. I think it's a time the business needs to lean in heavily to these issues and listen to their employees, think about how they'll learn from their employees who are fully aligned with you know, the hope for a prosperous and long run for the company they work for. So I have great hope that we are seeing a generational shift in business and that we will continue in the direction that we've started to see mapped out in the last couple of years with business stepping up and talking differently about the purpose of their enterprise and how they measure success and essentially opening their doors to these new realities of business.
3: The comment about shifts in business in the last few years makes me think about Betty Sue's remark that the stories about the future shape the actions we take in the present. It won't be a surprise to listeners of this podcast that I think stories about the past are incredibly important because they also shape how we act in the present and the future we make. So when I hear your framing of the last 20 years as this time of rising momentum for change in business, I find that really helpful. We talk a lot about foresight through hindsight on this podcast, but I wonder if this history, this momentum offers something more than foresight. It's a resource to actively shape the future for the better.
0: Thank you to everyone who has joined us on this journey through the last 20 years of U.S. business and society. You can find Business 2020 on iTunes and explore previous episodes covering everything from the 1999 Seattle WTO protests to the 2008 global financial crisis. And you can follow the Business and Society program on Twitter at @AspenBizSociety Society to stay updated on the latest news happening now. Business 2020 is hosted and produced by me, Michelle Harvin, and written by senior producer Keith Schumann, with input from Felicia Davis, Nancy McGaw, and the Business and Society team. Recorded by Ben Eiler, Amina Akhtar, and Rachel Wheeler, and edited by Jesse Krinsky. Special thanks to our guest this episode, Betty Sue Flowers. You can find detailed information on the music and sound credits through the site page for this episode on the BSP website.